0: guys guys oh my god it's been forever welcome back to crime ghoul a true crime podcast where i'm your host Brittany, and usually i go over crimes that are not heavily covered in the media but today i have to get this off my brain i have to get it off my chest i'm bringing you a deep dive into the delphi murders and maybe you've heard of it before maybe you haven't but today. I just want to give you guys my thoughts, my um, opinions. Whether you want them or not is a different story. If you aren't here to um, listen to my theories behind the whole thing, then you might want to just shut this off right now. But if you are interested in exploring different avenues and corners of this case, then well, come on in and go grab... Um, a glass of wine, maybe brew yourself a cup of coffee or perhaps take a shot of whiskey because for this one, oh boy, for this one you're going to need you're going to need it. As always, guys, thank you so much for joining. I am happy to be back and releasing in the evening instead of the morning is a little different for me, but hey, I'm back and that's all that matters but after my brief hiatus i am ready to deep dive into true crime again my passion and of course i'm sure it's yours otherwise you wouldn't be here with me right now so let me shut up and let's just get right to it because this this is a good one all right here we go <coughs> Down the hill. Three words that would turn a small town in Indiana upside down. If you're unfamiliar with these words in the small town called Delphi, fear not, because you're going to be well acquainted with it by the end of my episode. And Delphi was pretty much known for, uh, well, nothing. From the surface, Delphi is a quiet American town hidden from all the drama, the bad happenings. But you know, it's never that simple small towns tend to hold the largest secrets people and delphi well delphi is a town riddled with more questions than answers to be honest with you to tell you this story i need to take you guys back to february 13th 2017 liberty german and abigail williams will be the main characters of our story the girls were better known as abby and libby for short so that's what i will be referring to them as Abby was a thin 13-year-old girl with this freckled skin, dirty blonde hair, and rare hazel eyes, the color of a deep green leaf you'd find twirling down from a tree in the fall. She was a spitting image of her mom, Anna Williams. Abby's eyes were almost symbolic of her love for nature. She was the kind of girl who was fascinated by animals and bugs, a lot like me, honestly. She loved catching beetles, toads, and salamanders, animals that weren't usually appealing to other girls of her age. Abby was quite inquisitive, and she had all kinds of questions about the world around her. She was kind, but she was a little shy, not overly outgoing. But once she got to know you, man, did she love you. In her spare time, she enjoyed arts and crafts, specifically knitting hats for babies in the hospital, an activity she loved to do with her aunt. Anna and Abby were close. They had a tight bond and a beautiful mother-daughter relationship. To give you a little background on Libby, she was a 14-year-old girl. She was heavy-set with kind blue eyes and glistening blonde hair. She had an electric personality. She was spunky, outgoing, and friendly. Libby had a love for the sciences, and she enjoyed learning about forensics and true crime. Guess she would have fit in with us, honestly. Libby and her older sister Kelsey lived with their grandma Becky, Grandpa Mike, and Uncle Cody. And they would all describe Libby as fearless. Libby and Kelsey's dad, Derek, lived in the same town as them, but not in the same house, and their mom lived a little bit over 200 miles away in Kentucky. The girls didn't live with their parents on account of their past history with drugs and crime. It turns out that's quite normal in the town of Delphi. Chances are you will find a couple of broken homes. Nonetheless, there seemed to be a lot of love within the family. Obviously, it's not your traditional nuclear family, but it worked. Yet something tells me it didn't work as well as it may have seemed from the outside. But I'm going to get to that a little later. So February 12th, 2017, Abby went to spend the night at Libby's for a sleepover. It was a Thursday night and there was no school the next day. There are a few states in the U.S. that put aside days during the school year in case of inclement weather um, because, you know, it prevents safe transportation to school. And these days were typically called snow days. I know in New York we have those. I don't know. I know online some people were a little confused about snow days like on Reddit and stuff. So I felt that it was kind of necessary for me to, you know, make it known to you guys what that is in case you are you are in a different country listening and you don't know what a snow day is. So for that school year, they had one unused snow day left. So the school gave the students off that Friday, which um, was Friday the 13th. And wow, as I'm speaking this out loud, the date is kind of creepy now. All right, anyway, let's not get sidetracked. The girls had a three-day weekend to take advantage of, and they were inseparable, just like any other teenage best friends. They met about a year before while playing softball together, and they were stuck together like glue ever since. So that year, Libby and Abby were bonding a lot. Libby even convinced Abby to try out for volleyball that spring. And I'm sure they did what most girls did that night when they were having a sleepover. They were talking about their sports, probably you know, possibly volleyball in the spring. They were singing, laughing, talking about their crushes, their hobbies, and whatever else makes two teens click. You know what I'm saying? So the next day being February 13th, it started off nicely, you know, Um, Abby slept over on the 12th, they woke up on the 13th, and Grandpa Mike, Libby's grandfather, made them pancakes and they held Grandma Becky around the house. And by noon, the girls wanted to go to a local um, spot called Highbridge. So they asked Becky um, if they could go, but she was really busy and doing a lot of work around the house, so she told them they needed to get a ride there and back and it would be okay. So Highbridge was one of Libby's favorite places. It was an old abandoned railroad bridge that stood tall in the Monon Trail Park. A lot of the youth in that area were particularly interested in this location. Um, I, For some reason, a lot of towns have abandoned places that youth are really interested in. For me, it's a local um, psychiatric ward that's shut down, and it's creepy, dangerous, but do we love it? <laughs> yeah, we love it, people. We love it. So Libby went to Kelsey's bedroom, her older sister, and she asked her if she wanted to go to Highbridge with them. And Kelsey would eventually tell her that she couldn't because she was um, going out with her boyfriend and then she had work after. She had a really chaotic day coming up, but she took a second and realized, you know, she was saying no to Libby a lot. Libby would ask her to hang out and she just didn't have time to do anything and, you out of a little bit of sister, big sister guilt, you know, um, she decided that she would take the two girls to Highbridge. She would drop them off before she went to see her boyfriend, and she would go off to work, and she let Libby know, listen, you're gonna have to get a ride home because I'm not gonna be able to pick you up. So Libby asked her dad, Derek, if he could pick them up on his way home from work, and he agreed. So the girls jumped in the car. It was oddly... A beautiful warm day for February in Indiana. It was 58 de- degrees out. The sun was shining. The girls didn't even need jackets. They didn't want to bring jackets or sweatshirts. But um, Grandma Becky and Kelsey insisted that the girls take sweatshirts because you just never know. So that just goes to show how comfortable the weather was that day. So they made their way to the Monon trails. Kelsey dropped the girls off at an entrance entrance to the park and it wasn't the normal main entrance. It was actually this atypical entrance. It was kind of on the side of the park, but nevertheless, it would still get them to Highbridge. So Kelsey watched the girls giggle and walk into the park. And, well, that was the last she would ever see of her sister and Abby alive. Kelsey looked at the clock, and by then it was around one fifteen, and she um, ventured towards her boyfriend's house. She called him, let him know that she was on her way. And just a few hours later, she would receive a call that the girls were missing. So, like I said, around 1.15, um, Kelsey leaves. Now, Abby and Libby walked into to the park, and I'm sure the air was crisp and the trees bare, the remnants of autumn crunching beneath their feet. They would make their way to High Bridge, and it stood 70 feet high over the peaceful Deer Creek. The bridge was off limits. It was old. It was withered, and it was made of rotted wood. So, walking over the bridge was trespassing, but kids did it all the time, and this was kind of really bad because it's super dangerous. There are no, like, side railings to hold on to. It's just flat, um, what I I don't even know, (laughs) rotted wood that you could definitely walk on a wood plank and it just break and there you go, you're falling 70 feet down. Not good. So... Like I said, the kids did it all the time, and this would actually be the first time that timid Abby had ever walked over the bridge. And although it was intimidating, it was a beautiful bridge, and I'm sure the trespassing part made it a little bit of fun. Come on. Um, We've all been in moments like that. But unfortunately, this would also be the last time that Abby would ever walk over this bridge. It was the first and it was the last for her. Around 207, Libby posted a picture of her best friend walking on the bridge to Snapchat. The girls love taking pictures, and um, Abby actually shared this love with her mom as well. They both enjoyed taking photographs, and Abby enjoyed modeling, being a little, um, you know, a little fun, having a good time, and you know, just being very secure with herself for somebody who is so shy. Um, she was definitely secure for, with herself, so it seems, and that's just such a great thing for someone her age to have. It's hard being a 13 or 14-year-old girl, and you're going through all the weird parts of puberty and mean girls in middle school saying you're ugly, and you're just going through your awkward stage, but I don't know, maybe that was just me. Uh, no, it definitely wasn't. So back at home, their friend Erica was actually watching Snapchat. Like she was going through Snapchat stories and she saw that Libby had posted Abby going over the bridge and she really liked the picture. She loved the shot of Abby and she knew Abby was stepping out of her comfort zone. She was heavily aware that Abby could be timid at times and a little afraid to do things out of the ordinary. So Erica knew she needed to keep this picture. She needed it. Um, She loved it. She needed it in a time where she had to remind Abby, like, come on, be a little fearless. Remember when you walked over high bridge. Um, so, you know, she screenshotted the photo and thank God she did because it would really become useful later on in our story. So Erica knew the bridge was dangerous, like I said, but so did everybody else in the area. And teens love these kinds of things because they think they're invincible. They think they're immortal. Um, They long for that feeling of freedom, and if you guys have watched Perks of Being a Wallflower, you might remember this one scene that sums it up pretty perfectly. The main characters, Sam and Charlie, stretch their arms out wide, and they're kneeling in the bed of their friend's pickup truck, and the night air is just blowing in their face while going over this bridge that's taking them into the city. And, well, in that moment, they were infinite. So if you don't know that scene or that feeling, you need to come over right now because we're going to watch Perks of Being a Wallflower and then we're going to do something that's going to make you feel alive because, well, damn it, you deserve to feel it. But this is what I imagine um, Abby was probably feeling. It was one of those teen moments where she was like, "Ooh, I'm kind of doing something bad, but kind of doing something liberating. Um It's kind of a beautiful moment in its own way. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but I listen to this story and that's where I just really start sympathizing with the girls because I personally know what it's like to live one of those situations. And you kind of hope for situations like that in your life where you just feel liberated and free and at the top of the world with your friends. And so quickly Abby feels this and so quickly it's snuffed right from underneath her. But anyway, back to our story, knowing that the photo of Abby would soon disappear, Erica did a great job at Snapchatting, Um, I mean, screenshotting that Snapchat, and that would actually be the last photo ever taken of Abby Williams alive. It would also serve as a very important timestamp. So between the time of 2.07, when the picture is posted, and 3.11 p.m., we have no idea what happened to the girls. Only law enforcement and the person or persons who killed them truly know. So Derek, again, Liberty's father, was on his way to pick up the girls, and he called Libby so she knew to walk back to the entrance with Abby, but there was no answer. So at 314, Derek pulls into the parking lot and calls Libby to let her know that he got there and um, they needed to get their butts to the car, but still no answer. He figured she was finishing up with friends or something. Maybe they ran into some friends they knew. After all, that's where all the kids go. There's not much to do in Delphi, Indiana, so walking trails and hiking is pretty customary. But, you know, he wasn't too worried at first because the girls knew what time he had gotten off of work, and surely they'd be making their way over soon. But then several minutes later, he starts to get nervous. It was really weird for Libby not to answer the phone, especially when she was expecting a call from him. So Derek got out of his car and he headed for the trails. As he reached the point where the trails intersect, he stopped a man that was wearing a flannel shirt who was approaching that intersection. And he asked, did you happen to see two girls up there? And the man replied, no, I did not. But there's a couple on the bridge. So the man with the flannel shirt later becomes important because he's actually a key witness in this case, and he is among the first to give a witness account to law enforcement. So online discussion forums such as Reddit, where I get a lot of my rabbit hole details, um, actually refer to this guy as Flannel Shirt Guy. We don't really know his name. hes I'm pretty sure he's anonymous. I never found his name anywhere. But because Flannel Shirt Guy did not see the girls on the trail, Derek started to walk to another trail that would lead directly to the creek edge. By 3 30, he gets there, but he doesn't see the girls, so he goes back to the trail intersection where he calls his mom Becky and tells her about not being able to contact or find the girls. So Derek asks Becky to try contacting them. I guess he thinks, like, is Libby mad at me? Is that why she's not answering the phone? Does she just not want to leave and she doesn't want to talk to me? I don't know. Maybe she'll answer her grandma. But of course, um, that doesn't really work out either. So Tara, that's Libby's aunt, she was actually with Becky at the time that Derek had called her, and both Becky and Tara start blowing up um, Libby's phone with calls, text messages, and still just no response. So the terror really started to set in. They knew that that was weird. Libby was in constant communication all the time, and the fact that she was radio silent was bizarre. Her phone was practically glued to her hand, at every other part of the day, so what the hell? So I'm sure thoughts began running through their mind, the rationalization and all, like, you know, maybe Libby dropped her phone and she didn't realize, or maybe she didn't have any service, but the mind can easily discount these rationalizations. Um, One, well, for one, since Libby always had her phone in hand, she would quickly realize if she dropped it, and two, she always had service at Highbridge. Her family never had trouble contacting her while she was there before, so why would today be any different? And then the mind goes dark, you know. You start to wonder, what if something bad did happen to the girls? Why else would Liberty not be answering the phone? And then the panic seeps into your pores a little bit. By four o'clock, Derek makes it back to his car. And at this point, Becky, Tara, and Derek have been trying to get a hold of Libby for now a half an hour with no response. Becky and Tara decide to go to the trail to help Derek look for them. And, you know, they think maybe they were hurt and they couldn't get to the parking lot or they couldn't get to the cell phone. Just so many possibilities were there. They had to be okay. So Tara drives straight to the trail while Becky makes a few calls before leaving her house. And first, she called her husband, Liberty's grandpa, Mike, who was at work at Subaru in Lafayette, Indiana. And she alerted him of the situation. So Mike decides to leave work and drive to the trail to help search for the girls. He, too, knows that this behavior is very out of the ordinary for both Abby and Libby. So Becky then calls Kelsey and alerts her to the situation. Like, have you heard from the girls? Um, Have you seen them on social media? And Kelsey knows that there was a Snapchat of Abby that Libby posted, but that's really all she heard. So she immediately called work and she said, you know, maybe I could come in later. I have to go help my family find my sister, though. She's missing. She was um, dropped off by me at the Monon Trail, so I need to go help look. And thankfully, her job didn't give her a hard time or anything like that. They said, you know, go do what you have to do. Take care of it. Which, um, by the way, if you're an employer like I am, that's how you should always be. I know I know people could be a little sketchy sometimes, but I just I couldn't imagine. Like, could you imagine that work was like, no, Kelsey, you need to come here now, which I know of some employers that would do that. So just a little food for thought. Be kind to your, um, Be kind to your people, your associates. Take care of them anyway. So Tara drives up to the parking area and Derek gets into the car. They go together and he explains to Tara the details of where and what trails he has searched so far. And they briefly wait in the car for Becky and Mike to arrive so they can plan out um, who will go where and search what ground. And they really just wanted more numbers so they can cover more ground. Later on, there would be reports of Derek talking to someone in an unknown car in the parking area. And for some, this kind of um, created an unfound suspicion on him in online discussion forms. Like, who were you talking to? Who was this random person you were talking to? And, like, it just goes to show that there were people who were already speculating about the family a little bit. Um, but I guess, like, if you're any other rational person you could just say um i guess he could have been talking to some hiker like hey i just saw you come out of the trails did you by any chance see two girls like maybe asking that's not so far fetched you know what i mean so at this point though um becky's about to leave for the trail she's waiting for mike to get home mike gets home and libby's uncle cody actually arrives so cody is Libby and Kelsey's uncle. He is the adopted son of um, Mike and Becky, so he is Derek's stepbrother. I know this is a lot to take in. It's a bit of a tangled web we've got going on, but Cody is an adopted uncle, basically, Uh and an adopted son and an adopted brother, you know, so that's where that connection is, and Becky informs Cody of what was going on and that the girls were missing and he decides to join the search and he gets in the car and they drive to the trail together so cody had actually been coming back home from a mini getaway with friends and um they start to theorize about which path the girls would have taken if they were trying to walk home you know maybe they didn't want to Derek to get there so they decided to walk home So Becky drives the two possible routes that the girls could have taken, but still there's no sign of them. Becky and Cody then get to the parking area, and there are no available parking spots, so they park in a ditch nearby. And it should be noted that there were several non-family vehicles and people at the trail at this time. So there was activity in this park, okay? It's not like Abby and Libby were the only ones there, and that's really important to keep in mind. So at this point, Mike, Becky, Derek, Tara, Cody, Kelsey, they're all together. They meet up and they start searching for the girls. Kelsey and Cody cross them on in high bridge and they know that Libby's last post was there. So that's why they did it. And Kelsey talks about how she's pretty scared of this bridge and really only crossed it with Libby because she wouldn't want Libby to go alone. So for her to do this, it was it was a little um, sign of how much she cared about her sister So they arrived at the southeast end of the bridge and they don't see the girls. They can see down a hill to the private driveway that belongs to Ronald Logan and they spend 20 to 30 minutes yelling the girls' names from there, but they don't hear a response. From this location, Kelsey calls Libby's phone and she believes that the call went through because she can hear it ring on her own phone speaker. But Kelsey doesn't hear it ringing in the area, which leads her to believe that, um, the trail area was quiet enough that if, the, if um, Libby's phone had been near them, it would have started ringing. They would have heard it and they didn't. So in her opinion in that moment, they couldn't have been close because they would have heard the phone go off. But I mean, it is possible that Libby's phone was set to silent or vibrate, you know, so that could have been a thing. So Kelsey calls her mom, Carrie, the one who lives in Kentucky, to ask if she had seen Libby. And Carrie kind of laughs at this question because she's like, hello, Kelsey. like I live two, over 200 miles away, so of course I haven't seen Libby or Abby. Why do you ask? And Kelsey fills her mom in and explains that they can't find them anywhere in the park, that she dropped them off at the park and, you know, here they are now and there's no sign of them. So Carrie keeps in close contact and decides to head to Delphi the following day. Um, she's hoping that the girls are found, hoping that they are just goofing off with friends and kind of being irresponsible teenagers. And of course, they'd be in a lot of trouble for that, but there's really no reason to believe other than that at this point in time. So Carrie on her own attempts to contact Libby multiple times, which of course proves to be unsuccessful like everyone else. As the search continues, Becky calls um, the cell phone company that they have, which their provider is AT&T, and they ask if it's possible for them to ping Libby's phone so they can locate it. And AT&T says that they can't do that for legal reasons. So Becky asks them um, about cell phone tracking apps like Find My iPhone and Find My Droid, which would allow them to track the phone. Uh, But because of a misunderstanding, Becky ends up downloading the app And it takes a little bit of time for it to become clear that because the phone that Libby has with her didn't have the app, um, that method actually would not be successful. It wouldn't help in any way. So now we're approaching 520 and we still have no signs of the girls. So Mike calls his friend in law enforcement to report the girls missing. At this point, Becky has been unable to get a hold of Abby's mom, Anna. So she's calling Anna. There's no you know, no answer, and Becky knows that Anna needs to know that Abby and Libby are missing. Maybe Anna has seen them. So Becky leaves the search party of her family, and she drives all the way to Anna's house, and she's told Anna is at work. Mike calls Becky, and he informs her that the police requested for both of them to drive over to the police station um, for filing a missing person's report. And, before that, Becky starts driving to Anna's job. She knows how important it is to let her know that the girls are missing. But on her way to Anna's job, Anna um, Anna calls her and she gets the news from Becky and she makes her way to the police station where they're all going to meet up. So while that's happening, police arrive on scene and they start their own search um, for the girls in the park. Some family members take to social media. They're asking for volunteers in the community to, community to help search for the girls and ask if anybody has seen them. By six p.m., a massive search has ensued. Law enforcement is searching the park, and they're going door to door at nearby residents um, to search for the girls. And having heard of the missing girls through social media, a bunch of neighbors and community members show up and they aid in the search. They're helping the cops. The cops are telling them, you know, there's two girls missing and they've got nothing going on, so they leave their homes to find these girls, which is such a great sense of community. Like, that's the neighborhood I'd want to live in. Like, I'd want people to care that my kid's missing and we're a community and we're going to find them. So together, this massive search just starts to get a little bit more organized with the Carroll County Sheriff's Department, the Delphi Police Department, and Delphi Fire Department. The fire station is actually used as a staging ground for volunteers to meet up and to break up and um, cover, you know, discuss where they're going to cover to find these girls. And they're turning every rock, every stone. They're looking in garbage cans just in case. Like everywhere you can think of to look in the park, it's being searched, so Libby's sister Kelsey makes her way to the police station where they ask her about what she remembers from dropping the girls off earlier. Was there anything suspicious, anything different about the girls? Were they meeting anybody? And and the only thing that Kelsey can really think of is Libby's story. Like she posted two Snapchats and one of them were of Abby um, on the high bridge. At some point, Mike returns to the house to gather all of the electronics in the home. Like, police want to see the iPads, iPods, computers, anything electronic, and the relevant cell phone information so the police could start requesting AT&T to ping Libby's phone. By 10 o'clock that night, Kelsey goes home. She doesn't return to the search after the police precinct, um, because she's afraid of the dark. So she goes home and she goes to bed while this search is continuing. By 1030, it's reported on the news that Libby's cell phone is either dead or turned off, but this source isn't really known. It was just kind of posted in a forum, and I thought that that was interesting because, um, you know, either the phone died or somebody turned it off, and it's kind of hard to speculate, you know, which which it was. Like, was it, did the phone die or was it turned off? Because if it was turned off by someone, that's really creepy. But of course, it could have died. This is a long day. The girls haven't been seen. So, I just thought that was interesting to note. Then by 11.59 that night, a news article reports that dozens of deputies, Delphi police officers, and firefighters had been out searching the bank's. Drones had also been out and the drones surveyed the area for thermal and infrared energy to detect the girls. And that's a really interesting technology. It can detect body warmth and, you know, not to be so morbid, but it can detect, I think, up to five hours um, after somebody dies. So like, I don't know the specifics or the degrees and temperature, but like, let's say I died right now, um, they'd have five hours for a drone to be able to detect my Thermal infrared energy. My warmth, really. But the drones only picked up the searchers and animals in the area. There were no signs of the girls. There was constant body movement. So people looking around in hordes trying to find the girls and then what would seem like deer. By midnight, the um, officially sanctioned search was called off by law enforcement due to the darkness and a concern for volunteer safety. So the search was then planned to resume the next morning. It was interesting. This is probably not that great for the police department to do, but they originally were going to call dogs in to sniff out the girls, like try to get a scent. And instead of allowing the dogs to come, they end up turning them down. They're like, no, no, no. You know what? We don't need them, which is a little weird and just annoying, honestly. So, Carroll County Sheriff Toby Les- Lesenby, I don't want to say the wrong but I think it's Lesenby, says in a new re- news release that there was no reason to suspect foul play or to believe that the girls were in any immediate danger, which I find really bizarre, but anyway, he's basically stating that the biggest concern was exposure to the elements. So, Becky Patty is begging this man and law enforcement not to stop searching for the girls and He turns around and explains to them that, you know, oh, um, Libby and Abby, they're youthful, they're young, they've got youth on their side, they should be okay to survive outside for a night. You know, it's just, it's just an evening in Indiana overnight with um, skimpy little sweatshirts on, nothing. It's fine, they're gonna be fine. Who knows if they're even outside, which, I would have been going apeshit, and I'm sure Becky was, but you... How do you tell somebody that? How do you look somebody pleading to find their children or their grandchildren? How do you look them in the eyes and say, No, we'll 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 start it up later? Like, I don't know. I I get it. You gotta make sure everybody's safe and whatnot, and I can understand that. But like, why not keep officers out there? Like, I know they have to work the next day, and it is a small town, so that means it's a small department. And if everybody's exhausted, who's working all day? Totally get it. But They also had um, the state police there, too. So, I don't know. A little bizarre, if you ask me. So, firefighters and civilians unofficially continued the search throughout the night. They said, F you guys. We're going to keep looking for the girls. You can go to bed, but we're looking. Mike ends up driving Becky home to get some sleep. Um, She's so upset, so just drained from everything that's going on. I don't blame her. Um, so Mike brings her home. And on their way home, they observe so many flashlights and people just everywhere. It was like a sea of stars. If you've ever been to a concert and, you know, it used to be people take out the lighters, you know, and sway back and forth to the music. Now you take out your iPhone, you turn on your flashlight, you sway back and forth. It was kind of the same thing. And it almost brought tears to Becky's eyes because she was just so grateful for the community support for, um, the search for her grandchild and her grandchild's best friend. So after dropping the distraught Becky off, Mike goes back to the trail to continue searching. Around 2.30 a.m., law law enforcement receive a ping of Libby's phone, and it's near Highbridge. So they go back out, they return to find the phone, and they come up with nothing. It is like finding a needle in a haystack because all of the previous year's fall foliage is on the ground. There's leaves everywhere, so chances of this phone being brushed under leaves is pretty high. So they have the ping, and... A general location, not the exact location, and needless to say, they come up with nothing. So volunteers continued to search into the night, and by the next morning, an eerie fog had rolled into Delphi, and it really symbolized what was to come. News outlets had been covering the missing girl's case all night, and they mentioned that Libby was last seen wearing a tie-dye sweatshirt, gray pants, and black and white Nikes, and Abby had last been seen wearing a gray zip-up hoodie, jeans, and sneakers. So by ten twenty a.m., volunteers began gathering at the Delphi Municipal Building to continue searching for the girls. Law enforcement confidently told locals that every part of the park had been covered. It was all searched, like everything—the hills, the little divots, um, like I said before, garbage cans, like everything. The local neighborhood, neighborhood, the creeks. Um, that Monday, they planned to have actual like divers go in to the creeks and the waterways. But other than that, there were no signs of the girls anywhere. So by 1215, the def- the fire department split volunteers up into groups and they went into different places. Some of them looked around the town of Delphi and some of them were way out in the country near the high bridge. But according to Kelsey, it was nowhere that her sister would have went voluntarily. So Kelsey's group was actually sent to Highbridge, and another group that went to Highbridge were in charge of covering the other side of the bridge. And Kelsey was standing on the trail that's right under the bridge looking out into the woods when somebody yelled up that they had found a shoe. The volunteer asked what shoe were the girls wearing, and Kelsey says, well, Litby was wearing a black and white Nike, and sure enough, it's a black and white Nike. So Kelsey's like, that's my sister's shoe. The searcher that had asked that question took out their phone and they saw two deer in the distance moving and they noted that the deer were paying attention to the ground. So kind of intelligently, if you ask me, the volunteer zooms in on the camera to get a better look. And as they were inspecting, um, he was able to notice that there were two, what looked like two people laying on the ground And that's when he knew he had found them. Kelsey felt herself wanting to run. Um, The volunteer was like, oh, my God, we found them. We found them. And she just wanted to go go to Libby, but her feet weren't moving. She wanted so badly to see the girls that she wanted to know that they were okay and alive. But quickly, she realized the terrifying truth. The two bodies that lie ahead were no longer living. She felt everything closing in on her. She felt the pain, the sorrow, all of it just taking over, and she began to weep. A volunteer nearby had just lost her brother, and she was having that conversation with Kelsey. So she held Kelsey close and hugged her with all of the love and care she could possibly blast into one hug. Other volunteers held her back so she would not see the horrible scene. And from what law enforcement say, it was gruesome, and it was the stuff nightmares are made of. Many officers are still haunted and affected to this day by what they saw at the crime scene. The rest of Libby's family was notified, as well as the Williams family. Carrie Liberty's mom was just four blocks away from Monon Trails um, when she pulled into a local gas station and her phone began to ring. It was Derek, her ex-husband. She answered with hope, Did you find the girls? Crying, he told the mother of their child that they did find them but they were no longer with us. Carrie let out a deafening shriek and grief overcame her. She lost her daughter. She didn't know how, she didn't know why, and she was about to have more questions than answers. By two o'clock that day, a joint press conference was held by law enforcement with Indiana State Police Kim Riley, Carroll County Sheriff Toby Lesenby, and Delphi Police Chief Steve Mullins. They announced that two bodies had been found, but they did not confirm the identities of the bodies as Abby and Libby. They said search efforts will now be scaled back. They cut it back and they said that the matter is now being investigated as a crime scene and that they definitely suspected foul play. A reporter asked, why do you believe there's foul foul play? And Kim Riley responded, just the way the bodies were found, that's about all I can say at this point in time. And when asked, Were they in the water? He responded, they were on the edge of the water, from what I understand. That's about the best I can tell you. By midnight the next day, autopsies concluded that the bodies were, in fact, Abby and Libby. At 3 p.m. later that day, the Indiana State Police and the Carroll County Sheriff's Department held a news conference confirming that the bodies found Tuesday were those of Liberty, German, and Abigail Williams. They say that the case is being investigated as a a double homicide, and within a few days, police released little to no information regarding the case, but what they did make public would open various doors of speculation and possibility. On February 22nd, law enforcement released an audio recording where the voice of the suspect, though in some degree muffled, is heard to say, down the hill. It was at this news conference that officials credited the source of the audio and imagery to German smartphone and further regarded her as a hero for having the uncanny foresight and fortitude to record the exchange in secret. Police indicated that additional evidence from the phone had been secured, but that they did not release it as not to compromise any future trial. By this time, they were giving a reward um, for any um, helpful information in regards to who committed the murders the reward was forty one thousand dollars so i'm going to play the clip for you guys so you can hear what is believed to be the killer it's only three words and it doesn't tell us much there was additional video that libby recorded but we don't know what the context was we do not know how long it was and we do not know everything about this video Please ask people to come forward if they recognize this voice. So you'll notice in that clip it's actually guys down the hill. And later they would well, law enforcement would end up releasing that extra tidbit to that audio, which is guys. Originally, they had just released down the hill. And I will repeat that later on in our timeline. But that is chilling. Those are the chilling words of our supposed killer that was captured on Liberty German's phone. So we don't know if that was the actual order or if that was a broken up order. It took a lot for law enforcement to even... um, get that audio from the video. There was a lot of, um, technical stuff that went into that. Liberty's mom said that when she first heard the recording, um, well, the audio, it was extremely muffled. It didn't even sound like human. Um, it took a lot for them to buffer that out. So we don't know if it was said like that, like, guys down the hill, or if he said guys at some other point and then down the hill then. But, um, From what we know of this audio, this is the most that the perpetrator allegedly spoke in the video. So obviously, law enforcement has reason to believe that this is definitely the voice of the killer, and that's because they've seen the full video. Now, a couple of things come up that concern people at this point, because if this is the killer, like, you either know who he is or you don't, right? Not exactly, Um, You know, they it's a small town and they have the voice. They should know who it is. It sounds familiar, right? Not exactly. So here's why. Time went by and after no further developments were made in the case, law enforcement released more information on July 17th. That's when officers distributed um, this additional audio with guys down the hill um, rather than just down the hill. They also distributed a composite sketch of someone who at the time in the investigation was sought as a person of prime interest in the murders. It had apparently been drawn by police from eyewitness accounts um, from certain hikers, you know, that were on the Delphi historic trails that day that the girls vanished. So on my Instagram, crime ghoul underscore, you can find these these sketches. You can find the audio. They also would end up releasing a video of the said perpetrator. So as if things aren't crazy enough, the first composite sketch looks like an older man. He looks like maybe 50s, 60s, if you ask me. But as of April 19th, 2019, you know, two years go on, and there's still no information surrounding this case. Any further information, like from the public and from law enforcement, So on behalf of the state police and the multi-agency task force, Superintendent Doug Carter released more materials a few days later in a press conference, and that was held on April 22nd. The new materials included a short video recording in which this blue-jeaned and jacketed suspect is seen walking along the rail bridge for a little over a second. So Carter states that because of the deteriorated condition of the bridge, the suspect is not walking naturally due to the spacing between The ties. An updated sketch of the suspect was also unveiled, and this threw everyone for a freaking loop. Um, uh, it's just crazy because for two years people were looking at this first composite sketch, thinking this is who the person was, this is our suspect, and then they release a second one, and by contrast, um, it's a clean-shaven individual in a newly revised composite. um, And it's a younger version of the first composite sketch, or that's what it looks like. And they say that this person who killed the girls may range from age 18 to 40, but he has a youthful appearance and that could make him look younger than his actual age. Now, this is just crazy. You know, it is fucking crazy because um, you have such a small town of Delphi with such few residents like it's one of those towns where everybody knows everyone and everyone is kind of married to this one who's married to this one and knows that you know what I mean like it's it's that kind of town the town that doesn't lock their doors because they just know everyone and you have these two composite sketches you have this audio and you do have video which if you go take a look at my Instagram you'll see how um how bad the video actually is. And it was actually taken from a video that Libby had taken and it's zoomed in and it's heavily pixelated. But you would think that they'd have an idea of who it was. And I know some of you are probably thinking, well, maybe this was a straggler. Maybe we didn't know who this guy was. And a lot of forums refer to him as Bridge Guy. We don't know who he is. He goes by Bridge Guy or BG. That's just how the community kind of refers to him but perhaps the girls don't know who it is. Maybe nobody in the town knows who it is. And although I could see it, see that being a possibility, the chances of that are pretty slim, if you ask me. Um, I mean, you could look at other serial killers. Like, I mean, Ted Bundy lived, what? He was born in Kentucky, and then he ends up in Florida killing a sorority house full of girls. You know, like, yeah, he was a straggler. You're right. But Delphi, Indiana is just so desolate. There's really no reason to go there. To target a small town would be very stupid because, like I said, everybody knows everyone. So, I mean, I guess if you're an outsider just going through town, you might think you could get away with it. I mean, hell, this person's been getting away with it. So, if he is a straggler, maybe he had the right idea, as messed up as that sounds. But so far, we don't know who killed the girls. We don't know. But you know, F- the FBI was involved in this case, and there's actually an interview with the wonderful John Douglas, who I thoroughly enjoy. And if you've watched Mindhunter on Netflix, it's based off of him and the FBI. But he had some commentary on this case and stated that, in his belief, just the sole fact that the audio says, guys, down the hill, him, he thinks that the girls knew who this was. And from the get-go, I've always felt that in my bones, and I know it's stupid to go based off of your gut, but in the same sense, you should always trust, you know, you know what I'm saying? This case is freaking annoying. It is obnoxious. But anyway, um, you know, even today, it's 2021. We still don't know who did this. We don't know who killed the girls. We have so many unanswered questions. And to make matters even worse, law enforcement would state, you know, oh, there's no immediate danger to the community, but then they reveal that they have reason to believe that the suspect might well be hiding in plain sight and that the person is almost certainly familiar with the area of Delphi, whether it be from living or working there or for another reason. Okay. How stupid is that? How contradictory? Um, You want to say that there's no immediate danger, but just that there's some murderer who pretty much is probably living within town. Or, you know, Frequence Town. Like, what? Like, how does that make sense? So as you can see, this case is extremely murky, and I'm sure you have a bazillion questions. So I'm going to state some common questions and give you answers based on my research, which, beware, a lot of it is speculation, and a majority of it is rumor. It sucks. There are so many holes with this information that it's difficult to know what's true and what's not. So if you're familiar with this case, chances are you have heard of the podcast Down the Hill. And it's great. It explores this case from the ground up. And that's what the creators claim. They give you the facts. They have interviews with the police, with this one, this local, whatever. I'm not knocking at all it at all. It was a lot of work done. Clearly, these people are extremely passionate about the case and are extremely passionate about getting justice for Abby and Livy, Libby. And I found it very helpful in the sense that they were really good with the timeline for timeline purposes. But other than that, there was a lot left out, a lot of information that was leaked through Reddit and other internet sources. And I suppose I get it. Um, They try to focus on just the facts, what's concrete, but they fail to acknowledge that something is seriously wrong with this case. They fail to point out the shortcomings of a lot of the information. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm not okay with half ass information and I don't settle for, well, there are just some things that we don't know that we might not never know. Um, it's shitty. The, and the shitty thing about rumors is that they're seldom ever true. I get that. And I mean, it's usually a gassed up fabrication of a story, a true story that and it veers away from the truth of the story. But rumors begin from somewhere and there's usually a little bit of truth behind them if you look close enough. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with the crime scene. I'm sure you're all wondering, well, Brittany, hello, what happened to Abby and Libby? How did they die? And well, kids, I'm sorry. I don't have an answer for that question. That's right. We don't know. And here we are in 2021, years later, and we don't know how they were killed. And it's because law enforcement is keeping it locked up tight and tucked away somewhere in their sheriff's department, I'm sure. And don't get me wrong, at first I thought it was for good reason, but after being an outsider looking into the town of Delphi, I have some uneasy feelings about this investigation, so let's, let's begin. Libby and Abby, they were found dead in Monon Trail Park, okay? Okay. What we know is that their bodies were in this sunken part of the ground and I don't know that's really not a good way to describe it but basically they were a quarter of a mile away from Highbridge right near the creek and basically the land kind of goes down a hill into this bowl-like like terrain it's kind of like a sump but not really um like if you're standing by the creek it's hard to see the bottom because it just divots down a bit it's not quite a ditch it's not as deep but I hope you kind of get what I'm saying. Like the ground kind of goes down and then up. Um, and the girls were found at the bottom. So what Libby's grandpa tells us in an interview is that the girls fought like hell and they never left each other's side. They were soldiers. Da 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 Yeah. Which is good. I think I would like to know, um, you know, one for curious curiosity reasons. And two, because I think it would help the case a lot more. I would really like to know how the girls died. But I find um, it very admirable that Libby was able to be in whatever difficult difficult situation, nightmare, as um, law enforcement suggests, whatever nightmare she was in, she was able to record something that might help tell her story from beyond the grave and tell Abby's story. And that is just beyond admirable. And judging from what Grandpa tells us, They fought like hell and they did not leave each other's side. And that's friendship, okay? In a terrifying instance, that's friendship. And law enforcement and grandpa would talk about, like, very lightly that they think that one of the girls was able to get away and run for help, but they turned back for their friend. I don't know how they know this. I don't know if it's the video recording, but it sends chills down my spine and it just goes to show how much the girls cared for each other, because especially at that age, it would be so much easier to run from a nightmare than to run towards a nightmare. So law enforcement really emphasized that it's evident that Libby fought back hard. And they also disclose in an interview that Libby's video takes place just minutes before their death and that within this video, Libby tells them a lot. Now, we don't know if she's verbally saying something to the watcher or if what is recording what she's recording speaks for itself. So for a couple of reasons, I just find this all bizarre. And I say this because um, I say this mainly because we start with the crime scene, right? So law enforcement states that they covered that terrain, like turned over every rock, looked over every part of the park, and so did other volunteers. They sent the drones out. Yet, the girls were in the park. Yes, it was a quarter of a mile away from Highbridge. And it just so happened they were actually on this man's property. Um, His property kind of is nestled into this park, Ronald Logan. They were found on part of his property. So... You mean to tell me that with these drones and with all these people covering every nook and cranny, covering the neighborhood outside of the park, nobody stumbled upon them and the drones didn't pick up on their thermal body temperature. That's fucking weird. This whole time frame was extremely short. It was quick. The girls posted like Libby posted that picture at 207. Her dad gets to the park by 315. There's no sign of the girls. So either they were taken and they were killed, or they were already dead in that park, or they were dying in the park, and there's just no sign of them. I don't know. This rubs me the wrong way. I get it. It was away from the bridge, and no matter where I look, I can't get a confirmation as to whether that part of the park was covered or not, and I think someone would know. I think they would know if they walked into this divot and, um, you know, covered it and it's right by, it's on Ronald Logan's property. So I find it bizarre that I can't find anywhere online whether it was actually looked at or not. So that's bizarre. Um, I find the grandfather's interview a little bizarre because it was a few days after. So of course, I'm sure the family knows a little bit more than the public knows about how the girls died. And he says they fought like hell, they stuck to each other, you know, stuck with each other. Um, never left each other's side. And there's a couple of things I gather from this. I find it interesting. Like, it's like, how do you know all of this? Do you know because um, law enforcement told you? Does law enforcement know because of the the very short video? They said that the video is really not long. And they disclosed that there's not a whole lot of, more of verbal, like any verbal information that would be beneficial to the public's knowledge but then they also describe it as being a nightmare. Like, it's just very vague for something that has to be a really short video for something that happened in a very short amount of time. um, It seems like they know a whole lot. And I mean, a video can tell you so much. I know like you can go look at a video of Britney Spears and we've got people decoding a bunch of shit and free Britney, all that stuff within a TikTok. I get it but there's just something very strange about it. Um, You know, you try to put it all together and it just doesn't make sense. And then it gets stranger. Now there's these leaked text messages online on Reddit. I'm going to post them. And it's about the state of um, which Abby and Libby were found when their bodies were discovered. And there's a man named David Erskine. And that's Abigail Williams. That's Abby's uncle, and his text messages are released um, or leaked. We don't know if they are actually his or not. Like, there's no one to say, yes, these are David Erskine's and, like, actually have proof of it being his cell phone number or anything like that. You just have people who say, yeah, I know him. That's real. Or I have friends who are friends with their family who say yes. Or there's people who say, no, I have friends with friends of whose family, whatever, that say, no, that's wrong it's crazy. We don't fucking know. That's the problem. But basically, these um, text messages give us a little insight as to what happened. And if they are true, it's extremely disturbing. And allegedly, Libby was found almost decapitated. Her throat was cut so deep that um, her head was almost cut off. And um, it was very gruesome death for Libby. But, and for Abby, she was stabbed in the heart and kind of stabbed in the neck, like the the jugular, basically. Um, so on one hand, you've got a really messy, gruesome death. And yes, Abby's is too, but it almost seems like Abby was targeted at points that would have killed her quickly. And then the text messages kind of go into the fact that... Um, Libby had a scarf around her neck at her funeral viewing. And even this online, I can't find any information from anybody that went to the funeral. There's speculation. There's that text message. But there's no one out there who could really say, yes, I was at the funeral. And yes, the girls were wearing scarves or Libby was wearing a scarf. So that's difficult. And from what I read in the Reddit rabbit holes, they had open caskets. So Libby, I mean, if she was killed as gruesomely as it's is said, they did a really good job at covering it up during the viewing. If there was a viewing, here's the thing we don't know, and um, it sounds like there was overkill, and if you're a crime buff like me, you know what that means when there is overkill done to somebody, it's personal. Chances are someone knew Libby and they were or they knew someone. Who was very close to Libby, who loved Libby, and they took it out on her, or they have a personal reason, and maybe Libby looked like somebody and like the mother, like the person's mother, and they hate their mother. So they're like re killing their mother by killing Libby, if that makes sense. And then for Abby, it's almost as if she had a quicker death. You know, you're going to bleed out a lot quicker if certain arteries are gashed i know that's really bad to say or if you're stabbed directly in the heart whereas if your throat is slip slit and you're almost decapitated you're bleeding out a lot slower and you're half decapitated which is awful and then it's said that libby had no pants on um but nobody confirms if there was sexual assault or not so it's just crazy um If her pants were down and there was no sexual, this is all my and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's okay if you don't like my theory. Um, Feel free to comment on Instagram or Facebook and debunk me, yell at me, or agree with me. I don't care. Um, Let me hear your theories. That would be awesome. But also, there were some text messages that said there were like baby dolls, like naked baby dolls spread out around the girls and that the girls were like right next to each other and like just some really bizarre shit. Like, that's freaky. And um, law enforcement would go on to mention that the killer left three signatures. Um, now, that's interesting for a number of reasons. Usually, serial killers or people who kill a lot um, leave signatures. And how do you know that this man left signatures unless this person is killed before? Like, because for something to become a signature, like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but like i don't even know how to explain it but let's say your signature is um i guess like is BTK a good example like bind torture kill that was his that was his signature he would bind the girls torture them and kill them and that's how they knew that he was a repeat offender or like Richard Ramirez the night stalker he would go into windows and kill people like he'd sneak into people's homes that was his signature so what was this person's signature? Well, of course, that wasn't released to the public either, so we don't know. So that's that. Those are the David Erskine text messages that are extremely bizarre and unconfirmed. And then a little weird tidbit, just a few days before Libby and Abby were found killed, Libby's phone was reset just like two days before. Her whole, whole phone reset. Why? Why? The family didn't know why. We don't know why. Why was it reset? Bizarre, if you ask me. So then I start questioning things. I'm like, okay, so what's the simplest explanation? Because usually the answer to stuff like this is the simplest answer. Keep it simple, people. So in my opinion, the girls were found on Ronald Logan's property. So of course, perhaps it's Ronald Logan. But why in the hell would Ronald Logan kill these two girls, these two minors, and leave them on his property. It's either he's really a dumb idiot or he thinks he's smart and what cop would think that a perpetrator would actually kill girls and leave them on their own property. But something tells me it's not him. And I mean, Ronald Logan has a history of offenses and charges, but I don't think he's the killer. But that would be simple. What's the next simplest explanation? Okay, well... Someone knew the girls. All right. So let's see. Libby's phone is reset two days before. She's a 14-year-old girl. Could she have been talking to somebody? You know, could could she have met someone who was claiming they were younger than they really were? Just like law enforcement said, the person could be 18 to 40, but their appearance is younger than it seems. And perhaps on the video, Libby says something like, oh, you're so-and-so. Like, I thought you were, like, younger. You look younger. How old are you really? Like, and she kind of realizes, like, oh, this person's older. Maybe that's how. I don't know. But the fact that they mention and they find it worth mentioning that our suspect can be, um, you know, younger th- I mean... Older than they look leads me to believe, was there a catfish? And a lot of people speculate that, too. And it would make sense. Like, maybe Libby didn't want to get in trouble. She reset her phone a few days prior. Maybe there was some information. We don't know. Was grandma, were grandma and grandpa snooping? Like, and she was afraid that they might find something. I don't know. And maybe Abby and Libby planned to meet this boy or who they thought was a boy at Highbridge. And Abby kind of went as emotional support we don't really know. Abby didn't have a cell phone. And um, it's hard to tell because back in 2017, we don't have a cloud that was as like an iPhone, like the cloud, you know, the cloud. Um, We don't have, we didn't have as advanced iPhone clouds as we do now. So it's like, no one really could back up what was on Libby's phone. Or if they did, we don't really know everything that was found on the phone. So I don't know. But then, you know, for law enforcement to say, like, they believe that it could be someone living in plain sight, that leads me to believe that the girls had to have known who it was. Okay? They, uh, that's what I think. So it's someone they live among and the town is continuing to live with. And there had to be a reason for it. And if it's not a serial killer, then it's a personal crime. So it could be a sna- like a Snapchat murder, maybe. Maybe Libby was like, just like, ew, you're a creep and we're going to turn you in. And she videotaped the guy and he got pissed and he killed them. Okay, maybe he's like a pedophile. Maybe this is in his first offense, but Libby was the first person to piss him off. Like, who knows? It could have been that and that's why it was so personal. Or we could keep it even simpler and perhaps it was a family member. And I know. Here they come where I'm going to be bombarded by people who are going to hate me for saying it. But come on now. The first thing, and I'm not even kidding. When I first started really getting into Delphi, oh, God, forgive me. Um, I felt really uneasy by Liberty's family. And I hate to say that because I don't fucking know. I don't know Kelsey German from A Hole in the Wall. I don't know Mike or Bec- Becky Patty. And it's not Becky Patty that gave me any type of feelings, like weird feelings. It's not Derek, um, Liberty's father. Her Yeah, her mom, Carrie. No, not them. But there are two people that really rub me the wrong way. And those two people are Derek, Patty, which is Liberty's grandfather, and Cody Patty, the adopted uncle. So hear, hear me out on this. And, you know, if people want to come for me, I don't really care because this is These are my feelings. I don't know these people. And like I said, I'm an outsider looking in. These are my feelings. Um, This is just what my gut says. So I pay attention just like everybody else to what my gut kind of gears me towards. Okay, And as I started thinking, I was listening to it. And, you know, there was mention of Kelsey crossing Highbridge um, with... Cody looking for the girls. And I kept thinking, like, who's Cody? Is that her boyfriend? Because we know that when Kelsey dropped the girls off, she was going to her boyfriend's house right after. So I'm like, where's the boyfriend? Like, Kelsey's kind of strange. Like, there was just something about her, like, in her interviews. Like, I almost feel like she enjoys the interviews too much. And again, everybody's different. But when you look at, I've watched a lot of 2020 people, okay? When you watch 2020 or Dateline and you're interviewing the families, They're not as bubbly as and enthusiastic, and it almost seems absent of feeling. And again, it's just from body language and from what I see. I'm no expert. It's just what I see. So I started asking questions in my head. I'm like, all right, so who's her boyfriend? So I look into the boyfriend, whatever. Not really important. And then I go down a Reddit rabbit hole that mentions Cody Patty and, um... This really, really disturbing thing. There are rumors that at some point, one point or another, um, Kelsey and Cody were in a relationship or they were having a love affair. Now, at the time of Liberty's disappearance, Cody was 30 years old, Kelsey 17, Libby 14. So apparently there had been some love relationship going on something weird. And I was like, oh, God, this is all speculation. So annoying. If if only I could find something to kind of confirm this. And then I stumble upon a blog post, which I will post to my Instagram, that Kelsey German had made. And to paraphrase it, it is really blurry to read, really difficult. It looks like nobody wants any traces of this on the internet. So is it really Kelsey's blog? I'm not sure. But people who had followed her at the time, screenshotted it and said yes this was kelsey german's post and it's talking about a man um there's no mention of the name but just suggesting that at the time kelsey was a younger girl who was kind of groomed groomed into love with this older man that she really adored and just absolutely loved and quite possibly could have been her first love and then it goes on to say um that it was a very forceful relationship, that she knew it was wrong, and there were certain things she didn't necessarily want to do, but to make him happy, and because she loved him, she wanted to prove that she loved him, and it, it was kind of a relationship like that, your typical grooming, and very sad, and whatnot. So, you know, the blog post goes on to talk about how they're not together anymore, and that he has found a new girl, and she's 18 years old, and her, she was terrified of her parents finding out about the relationship. The grandparents knew about it, yada, yada, yada. The story goes on and on and on. But basically, what I've gathered from this blog post, um, because Cody did have to move out of the, um, out of Libby and Kelsey's home with her grandparents, he was with an 18 year old girl and he was older you know, substantially older than this 18-year-old and is, was getting married to this 18-year-old. And it was all just clicking. The The key was in the right hole, okay? That sounds really bad. But you get what I'm saying. Like, things were making sense. I was like, oh, shit, like making these connections. All right, whatever. And then I find something even worse, if you could believe that. So, of course, it seems that Kelsey German was a victim of sexual abuse and grooming by her adopted uncle. And now Cody and Cody Patty and Mike Patty have this great bond. Um, Mike really loves Cody so this kind of is starting to throw me off a little bit then I'm like all right Cody said he was away with friends in another state when he rolled into the driveway and Becky was leaving to go search for the girls he joins okay well his alibi there is a little um, convoluted and there's holes in his alibi some say he was line dancing in Kentucky with his friends for a few days and then others say he was at work there's no concrete alibi which bothers me And as I said, it gets a little more disturbing. So what I find is that there are rumors that Libby was pregnant. And this is really crazy and could sound far fetched, but could just make so much sense. So she was pregnant on Wikipedia and on the missing persons flyers. I know Wikipedia is really not that great of a source, but I'm just saying like, I found this in multiple locations, including the missing girls posters. Um, Libby was reported to weigh 200 pounds. In her pictures, she does not look like she weighs 200 pounds. She looks like she weighs less than that. And, you know, Abigail weighed 100 pounds, which makes sense. But looking at pictures of Libby, I'm just like 200 pounds. That's like pushing it. But I guess not if she was pregnant. Maybe, maybe it's like, baby weight. Maybe she was pregnant, you know, like, hmm. Makes you wonder because when you look at the side-by-side photos of Abby and Libby um, that were taken God knows when, you're like, I don't know. Like, she doesn't look 200 pounds, but I don't know what she looked like the day she went missing. There's only a photograph of Abby. So, I started to think maybe that rumor's true. Okay, whatever. So, then I start looking up their relationship and I find, you know, Libby, constantly posted pictures of Cody as being, like, her main squeeze, her main guy, like, you know, whatever, like, kind of just showing that she idolized him. And judging from Kelsey's post, she was around 13 years old when her relationship started with Cody. Clearly, it ended in some way um, with, you know, family finding out and being very upset about it, understandably, whatever, moved on. Or she tried to. Obviously, you don't just move on from sexual assault. That's not what I mean by any means. But, you know, she she kind of got over her love for him, maybe. I don't know. Life continued. That's all I'm trying to say. And now Liberty 14. Um, this was the same age Kelsey was. And Cody posts something very disturbing to Facebook the day that the girls go missing. A friend of his by the name Michael Brevard posts to his, wall, bro, she 14, though. And out of 12 comments, one of the comments Cody writes back is, it's har- hard to find that baby is mine. I only nutted it in her one time. Yeah, I know. Fucking disgusting, right? Yeah. Sorry for sharing. But I was like, holy shit. The day the girls go missing, you know, now I'm down the Reddit rabbit hole with some other fellow Redditors that I have come to find have the same feelings I do. And I'm like, holy shit, like, this is crazy. Oh, my God, whatever. And now people on Reddit are trying to debunk this. Like, oh, no, people say Cody's a great guy. And those were song lyrics. Let me tell you something. I Googled this comment. There, there is no song link to this. When I Google this comment, his post comes up. So, I don't want to hear any of that bullshit unless he was some wannabe rapper, whatever. I don't give a shit. The odds of this post being there the day the girls go missing is a little sus to me. And if you don't want to admit that you're just blind and you're afraid of hurting the family's feelings, totally get it. Me, I'm not that bitch. I don't care. I am trying to see what the simplest explanation is, and it's right here in front of our faces. So... It gets crazier because, as I've already stated, Mike, Patty, when the girls go, go missing, he calls his friend in law enforcement, stating that the girls went missing. So we already know Mike has a link to law enforcement. That's the grandfather. Now, rumor has it, Cody has friends who are in law enforcement, too. So don't know how true that is. But if that's the truth, of course, what you're probably thinking is, holy shit, what if this was a cover up? Now, you'd have to ask yourself, why would a bunch of people cover up for child murderers? I don't know. There might be something a lot deep, a lot more deep-rooted in it than we think. And if Cody did get Liberty pregnant, he's a 30-year-old man at the time, and Mike loves him, okay? And it, chances are there's one, there's more. We can already tell because if he was sleeping with Libby and got her pregnant, he already slept, slept with Kelsey when she was 13. Clearly, he has a fixation on girls of this age. Where there are two, there are definitely more, so maybe he's a pedophile and Mike is protecting him. And now he's a 30-year-old man who impregnated the grandchild of Mike. And what would that say if Libby's carrying around the child of a 30-year-old man? Um, That's, that's problematic. He's going to the slammer for a very long time. That's what that tells me. And of course, if that baby's already there, there's no denying like, oh no, it's not my baby. I mean, paternity tests. Cody lived in the house. Like, There's, his DNA is everywhere, okay? So, like, I don't know on a legal level, like, what could happen there, but if there's a, like, God forbid, there's a paternity test and it shows, like, yes, this 30-year-old impregnated my 14-year-old granddaughter. Meanwhile, we already know that he was living in the same, under the same roof when he was having a sexual relationship with my then 13-year-old granddaughter, Kelsey, and now history is repeating itself and if mike has such a close relationship to cody as it is rumored that's a problem because that means he has to be afraid that this kid is going to go to prison for for this and it seems like mike had a closer relationship to cody than his own children which worries me and then i go on to read more and it seems that um Mike and Libby had a tarnished relationship. They didn't get along. Libby had been had been known to run away multiple times. And clearly, Mike has to have a good relationship for law enforcement because if they know this girl is running away, if this was any other person, any other child who's known for running away, they're going to make you wait, like, f- 24 hours or 48 hours before they start looking. I mean, obviously, children are different, Amber Alerts, but you know what I'm saying. Like, who's to say that she didn't run away again, you know? So clearly he has to have some good friends in law enforcement. But then the question becomes, well, all right, there let's say Mike and Cody did it. Um how did they do it? Because supposedly Mike was at work. Was he? I don't know. I'm pretty sure he was a manager at Subaru. I don't know. Can anybody clarify that he was there? I mean, they say that their alibis are solid, but like, what if they're just saying that their alibis are solid? You know, you got people saying, yeah, he was there, but really he wasn't. And maybe they have reasons for not speaking up that we don't know about. And then as for Cody, there's already holes in his alibi. So who knows? Were they really at work? I don't know. So this is where it gets difficult to try to point fingers at anybody. And Maybe law enforcement does know who it is. I mean, during some of those press conferences, there's so much passion um, in their voices. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they do know who it is, but they don't have enough evidence to link the person to the to the murder. Yes, they have a video that's extremely blurry. Yes, they have audio, which doesn't necessarily prove anything. But who knows how helpful that video really is? Like, that video is useful. It gives us timestamps. It gives us, you know some evidence, but there's clearly more puzzles of the piece, uh, more pieces of the puzzle that are missing that we don't have. Otherwise, there would be an arrest that was already made, okay? So, that's my number one theory. I could go on for hours about a bunch of other things, and aside from this, I will link different, um, you know, documentaries or different interviews you could watch that I find quite disturbing with Mike Paddy because he shows no emotion. He goes on Dr. Phil, no emotion. He laughs at inappropriate times. Yeah, it could be awkwardness, it could be shyness, but just the lack of any type of feeling is scary. When he's interviewed for, um, for, like, a down-the-hill documentary, he he's more concerned about hunting and more worried about how now when he hunts he's not going to be able to enjoy hunting season as much because um you know the town will never be the same because the girls were murdered that's a little it's just such a distant distant thing to say you would think like oh maybe hunting won't be the same anymore because i used to take libby and now i don't have libby here with me to like enjoy our time in nature i don't know something like that don't you think and um when remembering Libby, he would bring up these passive, passive comments about, like, how, oh, yeah, Libby was the type where it was always, oh, give me one minute, always on her time, like, you know, like, just weird things. Nothing like, oh, she was smart, she excelled in science. No, it was, like, these weird little things, like, oh, yeah, it was always on her time. Like, I mean, maybe I'm looking into this a little too deeply, but, you know, it's just very strange. You listen to Becky, Patty, or Carrie, talk about liberty and it's all about um you know she was a kind, loving, outgoing person and then you talk to Mike Patty and he's concerned about how like you ask her to pick something up, like her backpack off the floor and oh no, give me a minute and then kind of uneasily laughs. Like that's your that's what you have to say about about your granddaughter. Like, I don't know. I just found it very odd. And again, I've got no proof or anything. Who the hell? I don't know. I'm I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy guys. Maybe but maybe I'm not. Mm, I don't know. So, that's my speculation, and not only that, but the day after, well, the days prior um, to the girls being, their corpses uh, being identified as actually being Libby and Abby, um, there are photographs of Mike with scratches all over his hands, and he does fit the first composite sketch, and Cody could definitely pass for that second composite sketch. So perhaps there were two of them, not just one of them. After all, I'm, the girls are 14 and 13 at the time. I mean, I would think that maybe they're a little more difficult to apprehend um, than, say, a five-year-old, you know, so maybe two people were needed. Who knows? Like, there's just so many possibilities. It just seems endless, and I mean, let's say it wasn't those two. Like, how did one person take down two girls like this? I mean, perhaps the predator came with a gun. If it was a Snapchat killer, if it was just a random straggler coming into town looking to prey upon girls, um, They could have easily used a gun to persuade them down the hill to wherever he wanted to take them. But my main theory is that Grandpa and Cody are a little fucking sketchy, okay? But other than that, there are more suspects. There are plenty of suspects, actually. And the thing I find most interesting about all this is one suspect was just named about a week and a half ago when I really started diving deep into this case because it was just... It was weird. Like something was just calling me Delphi. I don't know. Crime Junkie did an episode killer on the high bridge. And for some reason I was driving in the car the other day. I was like, I kind of want to listen to that case again. I never really went into it. I know it's bizarre. So let me take a look. And as I'm like going down these rabbit holes, I get a notification on my phone, a news alert that a possible connection has made, been made for a person of interest um, who could be linked to the Delphi murders. I'm like, what the f- what are the fucking odds? We just passed the four-year anniversary and all of a sudden this person's coming out of the woodwork. But before I get to him, there are other suspects. Um, Let's see. Ronald Logan, I already mentioned, which um, again, his property, they were found on his property. And I find it bizarre that a search warrant was only um, gained as of March 17th of that year. So, the girls um, were dead on April 13th and 14th. Yep, that's right. Um, Libby was declared dead, apparently, I mean, not on April, I'm sorry, on February um 13th. That was Libby's date of death, and Abby had a different date of death. It was April 14th. So, rumor has it that Abby actually lived longer than Libby. Um, I don't know the truth of that, but that's what's stated online on Wikipedia. Again, not always a great source. I don't really truly believe anything until I can actually see the autopsy reports that we might never be able to see. But anyway, um, the girls were killed on on February 13th and 14th, and it's not until March 17th that a search warrant is obtained. But again, I don't think Ronald Logan did it, Then there's Paul Etter, who was named a suspect. He was um, known for raping women in the community, and he was on, like, a five-hour speed chase with the police. Um, They were trying to arrest him, and he ended up killing himself. I don't think he's, um, you know, I don't think he's worth really exploring because the women he assaulted were mainly, like, in their 20s, early 30s. These girls are teens, so different age ranges which is like something that just suggests to me i don't think he did it then there's kevin sellers and he was submitted on a delphi tip line don't think he did it but that tip line um actually led to solving a cold case because he killed his uncle then there's daniel nations he was um 31 years old and when he failed to register as a sex offender he was arrested in colorado because he was threatening hikers with a hatchet Now, I found this one interesting because I'm like, all the way in Colorado, why are they looking at him? And then they say the hatchet and boom, in my head, it it just makes sense because if Libby was decapitated or almost decapitated, like uh, those text messages suggest, maybe a hatchet was um, the murder weapon. So, I mean, that one could be possible. I would be interested in entertaining that. Maybe this guy goes to national parks or just hiking trails and he waits with a hatchet and he terrorizes hikers. And he's a sex offender, already a registered sex offender. So perhaps Daniel Nations is up there in my opinion. Then there's Charles Andrew Eldridge. Um, He's 46, a former security guard. And he was arranging um, to meet a 13-year-old girl for sex, and he was actually caught in a sting operation. He was really talking to a cop the whole time. And he had a morbid fascination with missing children. Like, he had it posted in his house. Like, he was on forums and stuff for missing kids, and he also had a fixation on young children, including young boys. So he could be up there, too, definitely. Um, Creepy. And then there's Jason Wilhelm, a he was a suspect in multiple rapes in Indiana. He prowled on Facebook users, and he dosed a man with date rape drugs. He had an extensive criminal history, but again, dosed a man—that's an adult, not a teenager. So I don't know how um, valuable he is as a person of interest. And then. for a little while on wikipedia david erskine abby's uncle the one with the text messages he was just listed as a person of interest but there was really no reason and i'm sure there are more suspects but this one that just hit headlines last week or about a week and a half ago really freaking jerks my chain all right um his name is hold on his name is james chadwell and if you are a crime buff like me, you will know that James Brian Chadwell II, that's his full name, has a history of drinking, violent fights, and, um, yeah, kidnapping nine-year-olds and locking them in his basement. Completely premeditated, absolutely. Um, a nine-year-old girl went missing in her neighborhood and... Law enforcement was quickly notified and they were looking for the girl and one thing led to another. Needless to say, they ended up at James Chadwell's house, and um they were able to discover that a naked nine-year-old girl was in the basement, chained up, and she was hysterically crying because she kept saying, He was gonna kill me, he was gonna kill me and she had all of this bruising around her neck, her the blood vessels in her eyes were popped. Uh, she was explaining that he lured her into his, um, house with his pit bulls, with his dogs, like, oh, come pet my dogs. She actually had a dog bite. Uh, yeah, he, he really beat her up bad. A nine-year-old's fucking disgraceful. So, he clearly, um, lives near Indiana and now is being investigated. We don't know how... I like I don't know how valuable of a person of interest he is, but he looks younger than he is for sure. Definitely fits the composite sketches. If you were to put the first sketch and the second sketch together, I think you'd get James Chadwell the second. So who the hell knows this very well could be our guy. And to make it even creepier, he has these terrifying tattoos of two girls um, crying and it looks like they're crying tears of blood. And some people online are comparing the tattoo to Liberty, Liberty German specifically, saying that it looks a lot like Libby. And I'm going to post a side-by-side to my Instagram and you could be the judge of that. But it really got me thinking because when I read what he did to this poor nine-year-old girl and I looked at this picture, it freaked me the fuck out, um, mainly because... I started thinking about the case again and how law enforcement stated that the guy had signatures, like the killer has signatures. And then I look at these tattoos and let's, let's just uh, play pretend and say that maybe the tattoo was Liberty. Now she's got blood coming from her eyes and she's dead. Um, Well, That's what the tattoo looks like. Um, What if that's how Liberty was killed? Maybe she was choked out or both girls were choked out. There are two girls tattooed on his arm crying blood. What if it was Libby and Abby and he choked them to the point of making their eyes bleed? That's what he did to this nine-year-old. What if that's his signature? So, that really got me on board with this James Chadwell the second train that's going on right now. And going on his Facebook, like, he's just an avid lover of sleeping under bridges, being um, in nature and hiking, and definitely looks younger than he is, a a full-blown creep. His family even thinks he could be guilty of the murders and say that his brother says that he's just pure evil. So I think we're going to hear a lot more about Mr. Chadwell. I know he just got into a fight in jail. Good. He got his ass beat. Whatever. Um, you clearly deserve some type of ass beating, in my opinion. But I think we've got a lot of um, possibility with this guy and I'm very interested to see what unravels. And I hate to say it, but I really hope it like I just hope it's him one because this case needs to be closed. These girls deserve justice and it would not that it would make me feel better, but I'd really rather it be a scumbag than someone that Libby and Abby trusted and being a family member or family related in any way but clearly pedophiles are a lot more prominent than um, a lot of us may think, which is also disturbing and be careful. That's all I can say because, I mean, look at Cody, Cody Patty living right in the home and if rumors are true and him and Kelsey had a loving relationship and he, like, this relationship, sexual relationship, and he was grooming her, lived in the same house, like, fuck, man. God knows. I think it's like, one in five children are sexually abused at some point in their life and that statistic is just devastating so i think only time will tell i really hope that this case is solved and i have so many questions like why the fuck wasn't it solved yet (laughs) um how could you have such vital information or what you tell everybody is vital information, but you still don't have an answer, which leads me to believe you don't have as much information as you would like the perpetrator to believe you have. So that is my thoughts on Delphi. And I could go on longer and I could really touch base with all of these suspects if that's something you guys want to hear. So who knows, maybe I'll end up doing a part two of Delphi, because there's just so much more to explore that I haven't even mentioned or come close to mention mentioning. So let me know how you guys felt about this. If I hurt anybody's feelings, totally sorry, but hey, I'm entitled to my opinions and theories as well, and I will respect yours if you want to talk about them. Just as long as you're respectful towards mine, we don't need any hate here. Um, clearly there's enough hate in the world. We need more positivity and light, especially when talking about such dark freaking cases like this one. So thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me. I'm sorry this episode is late. Um I'm actually just done recording. So you guys are gonna get this like nice and fresh. I said it was gonna be out by nine. As I'm concluding right now, it's nine forty one. God bless. So sorry, but shit, your girl's been busy and I just can't believe I've still been getting listeners while I haven't been around. That's awesome. Next week is my 30th episode. I'm about to hit 3,000 listeners and downloads, I should say. And I'm thinking a giveaway is coming up in the future, so let me know what you guys would like to see. Hit me up on crime ghoul underscore. That's my Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, crime ghoul, Twitter, crime ghoul. Um, Go crazy. I love friends. I love friends, especially who like to talk about morbid stuff that my fiance doesn't like to hear about and most of my friends. Might judge me for. And uh, yeah, for you gory individuals out there who don't mind discussing theories and ideas or cases like this, talk to me. Let me know. I'm very interested in the forensic aspect of things. So, all right. That's all I got for you guys. I'm happy to be back, happy to be present with you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're looking to support me in any way, give my podcast a share. Sharing on Instagram is really helpful if you want to put me in your story or anything like that, um, just to help me gain some traction, get some more people who might be interested. Or sharing me on any social media platform is something free you could do. That would help so much. Or if you are an Apple podcast listener, if you could go and leave me a rating, Leave me five stars if you absolutely love this episode, um, and if you absolutely love what I do, maybe leave me a comment on there, too. That's always nice. Or if you're looking for other ways um, to keep me doing something that I love, what would help is if you check out my link tree. I do have merch for my podcast. So I'm extremely happy and proud of it. I've worked so hard to do this, um, and I, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't make a whole lot of money from doing this. Uh, I would. I could. Freaking wish it could be my full time job, but it can't. <coughs> so, if you're looking to um, support me in any way financially, check me out on my link tree and um, yeah, go nuts if you're feeling generous. If not, you listening and you being here with me is all that matters. And having friends who talk about stuff like this is what truly matters to me. So, good night, true crime community. After finishing a lengthy thesis, for my psychology master's degree and doing hours of research for this case, I am officially slumped and I'm going to hit the hay. So be safe if you go hiking like a lot of my loved ones do who decide to go by themselves. Be careful. Drop me your location. Let me. You want to let somebody know where you are? Let me know. Um, ugh, It's just so scary when people I care about go hiking or go like to these big parks by themselves. I've just heard way too many um, horror stories. But enough of that. Um, Yeah, let me know where you're going. If you have no one else, you could tell because I care about you. Know that somebody cares about you. All right. Have a great night. I hope you guys have a lot of peace in your week and find some time for relaxation and self-care because you need it. I almost said (laughs) self-scare. Okay. Love you guys. Bye.